are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. The Bible in the chair in front of you, it's on page 991 to 992. Matthew 27, verses 38 to 44, reading from the English Standard Vision. Version, Matthew 27. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Sunday before Passover. The city of Jerusalem is in a stir. I mean, it is the busiest time of year as people flock to Jerusalem for celebrating the Passover, but there's something happening that seems different. I hear a clamoring down by the city gates, so I start to go that direction and other people going as well. And Usually, we just expect some new dignitary arriving to town. So who is it today? Who's arriving to Jerusalem today, the Sunday before Passover? And as I get there and I push my way to see who it is, it's not some king or leader on a horse. It's a man on a donkey. He's not surrounded by soldiers and chariots, but he's surrounded by a crowd. And as I try and figure out who this is, I, I, I look and push closer, and men, women, children of all ages are, are taking off their coats and, and laying them on the road, and others are cutting off branches from the tree. Some are, are waving them in the air. Others are laying them on the road as well, and, and I, I don't know who this is, and so I ask. But before I could ask, there's these shouts that start to ring out, and it grows louder and louder, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And so who is this son of David? Why, this is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. That's who this is. And so I want to see what this prophet is doing. And so I, I decide to follow him. He makes his way to the temple. And as I try to push through the crowd, jostling shoulders, trying to hear what this prophet might say at the temple of all places... I don't hear anything except shouts of anger and then animal sounds echoing down through the streets. And then the crowd seems to be split. Some are turning and going, some with money that they picked up from the overchanged money changer tables. And I want to know, what is this prophet going to do? So I push in closer. Others are also with me pushing in closer. What is this prophet going to say? But he says nothing. Instead, he heals the lame, the blind, the mute, the sick, 
Those who gather at the temple day after day looking for alms or a morsel or scrap of food to sustain them for a day, he heals them. And then almost like the return of an echo, the shouts begin to start again. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. The crowd is loving it. I'm loving it. I'm getting into it. But as I look over at the religious leaders standing by the side, they are not amused. Some might even say they were indignant. Now, I'm not sure what's to become of this prophet of Nazareth, but I think this is not the end of his story. During this season of Lent, we've been in this series, The Way of the Cross. If we want to be followers of Jesus, what does that entail? What kind of example did he set? Jesus walked the path of self-denial and humility all along the way, and his mind was set on Calvary. He did not enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday by accident. It was calculated, purposeful, and ultimately part of the redemptive plan. He knows what's coming. Today marks the start of what we refer to as Holy Week, the, the week between Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem and Easter when he rises from the dead. But during this week, he enters Jerusalem and cleanses the temple of the money changers and those who sold animals. He heals the blind and the lame. He teaches and parables that point to the coming kingdom of God. He answers the tests and the entrapping questions from the Pharisees and religious leaders. He proclaims to the crowd seven woes against the scribes and Pharisees, calling them hypocrites and blind fools. He also tells his disciples about the future destruction of the temple, and he paints a picture of what the final judgment will be like when the Son of Man comes in glory. Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples and gives them a new covenant in his body and his blood. Jesus, though, is abandoned by his disciples, betrayed by Judas, tried before the religious tribunal, and sent over to Pilate, the governor, for sentencing. Jesus is put up in front of the crowd to be released as a prisoner by Pilate's good graces, but the crowd chooses the rebel thug Barabbas instead. Jesus is ridiculed by the soldiers. He is beaten and flogged. Then Jesus is led out beyond the city gates and he is crucified. The soldiers put a placard over his head, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then they passed time waiting for him to die by casting lots for his garments and clothing. Business as usual for these soldiers. And this is where we pick up the story this morning. Jesus on the cross with a crowd gathered watching. So if you haven't turned there yet, you can turn with me to Matthew 27, 38 through 44. And um, like Bob mentioned, if you're on, uh, using the black Bibles under the seat in front of you, we're on page 991. So Jesus is mocked. Now he's mocked while he's on the cross. And as we read and listened to these verses, maybe because it's so familiar, we don't quite pick up on how unordinary this might feel. 
Yeah, so what? Jesus was mocked on the cross. They rejected him. He died. Then he rose again. But we want to look at why the crowds and the religious leaders were mocking him on the cross, what they thought they were saying with their taunts, and the ironic truth of what they were actually saying. Last week, Pastor Joey set up for us a reminder of all that crucifixion entails, especially why it was the preferred method of execution for the Roman occupiers. Crucifixion was supposed to be public, not just for the shame of the accursed, but it was a warning to any and all who would pass by. Crucifixion was also supposed to be torturous and painful. Its goal was suffering. No easy way out. You will pay for what you've done. But crucifixion was also intended to be dehumanizing. Stripped naked, beaten and flogged, forced to carry their own cross and method of execution, bound and nailed to a cross, just like every other criminal who died in the same way. There was no way out of this. Painful and excruciating death was inevitable. And so in this moment, one might almost expect this last glimpse of human decency. After all, even the soldiers who were crucifying him offered Jesus a sour wine narcotic to help numb the pain, but Jesus refused that. He didn't take the easy way out then. And instead of human decency, we see this crowd perhaps spurred on by the religious leaders in attendance, hurling insults and taunts at Jesus. I mean, that's pretty harsh, right? Mocking a man nailed to a wooden cross, naked and about to die. I mean, that's the very definition of kicking someone when they're down. But that's what they did. And lest I think I'm immune to this, I know I used to do a lesser version of this when I was a kid, Um, I think we all might have done this at some point when your brother or sister is about to have an experience with the rod of discipline. If you're witnessing it, can't help but maybe, you know, shoot them a look, stick out a tongue, or maybe even a, I told you so, right? Like, you know, it kind of feels good to selfishly like, hey, that's not me. Glad that's not me. But here we find the crowd hurling these insults and taunts at Jesus. What's the content of what they're trying to say? Why are they gloating in his demise? So the first taunt that comes at Jesus is actually from just the crowd. It says the crowds, those who walked by were wagging their heads. Verses 39 and 40, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God come down from the cross. Now, Matthew is the gospel writer here, and he has a unique perspective. And his perspective that he has been focusing on the entire gospel writing is that Jesus is the true Messiah of Israel. And so as he recounts the mocking that Jesus faced on the cross, he's trying to show that even in the mocking of Jesus, he is fulfilling the role of the Messiah according to the Old Testament couple passages that he's probably alluding to. Uh, one is Psalm 22, 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. And then Lamentations two fifteen. 
All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads. Part of what it means for Jesus to walk in the way of the cross is to suffer the mocking and reviling of those who are witness to it. So this first taunt, this first thing that comes to, the, to Jesus is, come down from the cross. And it actually starts with the same accusation that was brought up at his you know, uh, tr- uh, trial before Caiaphas in Matthew 26. They made this accusation of him that you say you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, of course, Jesus did not actually say that. They had twisted his words. He said, you will destroy the temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. But he was referring to his body, not the literal temple. But we can assume, based on this coming up at the cross, that those who were witnesses to the proceedings at the Sanhedrin tribunal uh, probably are here now, or at least they've heard of the report of what Jesus was charged with. The pinnacle of this deriding, though, is really in the accusation, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And before we just dismiss the crowd and say, oh, they had no idea what they were talking about, this is the Son of God, let's think about this from their perspective. There is certain logic to what the crowd is saying. No real Messiah of Israel would be crucified on a cross between two criminals, at least so they thought. His execution is itself proof that he is not who he claimed to be. He is an imposter. This can't be the son of God. I mean, just look at him, hanging on the cross. That's no son of God. However, what this taunt presents to Jesus is actually a final temptation to listen to the voice of the evil one, to get Jesus to avoid suffering. I get up here to preach a few times a year, and I enjoy that. And uh, one of the times last year I preached was about a year ago, and it was during the season of Lent, and I had the privilege of walking us through and and studying um, the third temptation of Jesus. And so as I was preparing this one, I couldn't help but think about the temptation that the evil one gave to Jesus, that third temptation, which was, hey, all the kingdoms of the world, all the power and authority you want, bow down and worship me, and it'll all be yours. Which was not really a temptation for Jesus to grasp at the authority because he already had it. He knew he would get it, but he had to go through the cross. So what the evil one was tempting him with was this, hey, take the easy way out. Avoid the cross. Avoid the suffering. And so here, as Jesus on the cross listens to the taunts of the crowd, he's reminded of that temptation, that there's a way out. Come down from the cross. Why needlessly suffer and die? Also, these people are mocking you. Do you really want to die and suffer for them? We know this side of the resurrection, that if Jesus did come down from the cross— He would not truly be the son of God. The crowd looks at Jesus and says, surely this is not the son of God because he cannot come down from the cross. But we look at Jesus and say, surely this is the son of God because he chose not to come down 
from the cross. So that's the taunt from the crowd, and then the next taunts actually come from the chief priests and scribes and elders, all of whom were probably relishing a little too much and enjoying seeing Jesus suffer and die. This man had made their lives pretty miserable. He had upended their business practices in the temple courts. He found a way to answer their trick questions and claimed he wasn't doing anything wrong, and he openly told the crowds that they were hypocrites, fools, and blind guides. Might have felt nice for them to see the pain in the neck that they had to deal with, about to die, and finally be done with. So they join in the mocking, verses 41 through 43. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. So there's three kind of taunts or mockings that are going on here, and we're going to take them one at a time. But first thing that they say is, he saved others. He cannot save himself. And this accusation against Jesus is once again driving at this foundational belief for the crowd and the religious leaders that power, authority, and strength are core to who the eventual Messiah will be. Enough of this weak, lowly carpenter prophet. We don't need him anymore. We're looking for the real Messiah, the one that's going to come and power. And they mention that he saved others probably referring to his ongoing healing ministry, things that they couldn't deny, that he saved people from diseases and lifelong health conditions. He healed the blind, the lame, and the mute. He drove out demons from those possessed, and he saved these people from the ongoing judgment of God because certainly these people were experiencing these ailments because of their own sin, right? We know that not to be true, but... That's how they see it. And so this man on the cross who saved others, how could he possibly save himself? And if by some small chance he was able to save himself, why hasn't he done so already? Why is he still hanging on the cross? The ironic truth here, maybe you've picked up on it, is that Jesus did possess the power strength, and authority to get down off the cross. And he could have saved himself. He could have chosen to do that. But if he would have chosen to save himself, he then would be giving up any chance of ever saving anyone else. If he saves himself, he actually saves nobody. And so in a way, what the religious leaders say is true. He can't save himself because that would be deviating from God's perfect plan for redemption and mankind. They are questioning the very same supernatural power that healed and saved others, but they're saying, where is your power now? Just a few days prior, the crowd had erupted with shouts of Hosanna, which Hosanna means save us now or deliver us. And they were shouting for Jesus, Hosanna, save us, deliver us, just a few days prior. But they say, hey, look at you now. 
The crowd thought you could save them, but you are not saving anybody anymore. The second of their three taunts is, starts with, he is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And so they really start to lay it on thick here. They address him by his title, king of Israel, the thing that hung over his head at the moment, king of the Jews, and they make a sarcastic and loathsome promise. If you really want us to believe you, Show us you are the type of Messiah who is powerful and has authority, and then we will believe in you. But they saw no risk in making this empty and mocking promise. There was no way this man dying before them would ever be able to get himself down off the cross. And for us, as onlookers and readers of the narrative, we could also reasonably conclude that even if Jesus were to get down off the cross for a moment to call their bluff and teach them a lesson, they would not have repented anyway. They were not looking for an opportunity to repent. Jesus had already given them plenty. They wanted to relish in their victory and remind Jesus one last time before he died, you're dying on the cross because you are not the powerful, almighty Messiah that you claimed to be. You are no king of Israel. And then their third and final taunt in verse 43 would surely have driven a nail into the heart of any false Messiah. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. So what they're saying here is like, okay, you say you're a son of God. Okay. And oh, you can't save yourself? Let's say you can't save yourself? Okay, then. As a son of God, trust in God. Let God save you. If God really loves you, he will save you, right? But once again, the religious leaders have absolute confidence that this man on the cross is as good as dead. Let the last thing he hears before he dies be the reminder that God doesn't love him and God will not listen to your cries for help. Surely, if your faith in God was true and genuine, he would not let you suffer in this way. Jesus did make claims to be the Son of God, and they recognized those claims, at least in part, to Jesus claiming to be the Christ. Thus, assuming that God must crown every effort and act from the Messiah with success, they conclude, reasonably, that the hopelessness of Jesus' current situation on the cross is proof enough that he was certainly a liar. The ironic thing here is as they say this final taunt that he trusts in God— Matthew puts it in a way where it's almost a direct quote from Psalm 22.8. The same psalm that he has kind of put throughout this passion narrative. Psalm 22.8 says, He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let God rescue him, for he delights in him. In my mind, I think there's something poetically beautiful about the enemies of Jesus speaking unconscious truths about the reality of Jesus being the Christ. 
Another example of this is Caiaphas in John 11, the same Caiaphas who was high priest over Jesus' trial. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders got together and they were concerned that because of Jesus, Rome might come, see this as rebellion, and just wipe out all of Israel. So, speaking of this, they make a plot to kill Jesus, and Caiaphas says, speaking of this thing, well, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. But John, writing his gospel, says that he actually was prophesying, foretelling the death of Jesus, that this one man, Jesus, would indeed die for the nation, but also to gather the scattered children of God. So here again, the religious leaders are taunting Jesus with the very words of Psalm 22, which was seen as a messianic psalm. And we'll get to it more next week when Psalm 22 begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This section of Matthew concludes in verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Matthew does not include any other details about the thieves and rebels crucified next to Jesus, other than to point out that they also joined in the verbal abuse. Maybe they did it to feel slightly morally superior in their dying moments. Maybe the viciousness of the crowd was too much. And hey, better they mock this guy in the middle, they call Jesus, than for the crowd to turn and mock me for what I've done. But, I mean, just like I would mock my brother's tears when they were headed towards discipline, even if it was partly my fault and I knew my turn was coming, sinfully and selfishly it made it a little more enjoyable to give my brother a look or to say, maybe even say, you're welcome. And so even the robbers and thieves mock Jesus. So if this is the way of the cross, mocking, taunting, reviling, if this is the way of the cross, how does Jesus respond? Well, during his trial before the Sanhedrin and then again before Pilate, in both instances, they were demanding a response from Jesus. Have you no answer to these accusations? Or why won't you defend yourself? Are you the king of the Jews? And the only answer that Jesus gives in these instances is basically, so you say. Which is him basically saying, you call me the Christ, and that is what I am. I am what you say, but I'm not the Christ in the way that you think of the Christ. But here on the cross, the crowd is not looking for any sort of verbal response. They want a demonstration of power. Though, as we've mentioned, there's no real belief on their part, it seems, that Jesus was capable of any display of power whatsoever. And so Jesus' silence at their request for power was his reply. He was not coming down from the cross. We know Jesus could not stay faithful to the Father's plan and save himself from the cross. He must suffer and die in order to save humankind from sin and death. But if I'm honest, I'm kind of wondering, what's stopping Jesus from at least answering the mocking taunts of the crowd and the religious leaders? 
He could have said something like, guys, just trust me. I'm, I'm here on the cross for a reason. Let me explain to you what I'm doing for you. I mean, surely as he answered the, their entrapping questions in the midst of the crowds day before, days before about paying taxes to Caesar or what's the greatest commandment, he could also answer their accusations here, right? But Jesus gave them no response. He refused the temptation to get down off the cross. He resisted the urge to give them a dose of reality and truth. His mind was set on doing the Father's will, even though that meant suffering and death. Jesus was silent before his accusers during his trial, but the way of the cross for Jesus meant he resisted the urge to jump to his own defense. And now in the face of reviling and mocking, Walking in the way of the cross means that Jesus bears the shame and suffering that was essential to his task. He is dying in order to save us. Yes, that's, that's true. But he's also showing us what his kingdom looks like. His kingdom is marked by humility and self-sacrifice, not selfish attempts at power and exercising authority. And so as we look at how Jesus walked the way of the cross, we then ask, okay, if we are walking in the way of the cross with him, identifying ourselves with him, what does that mean for us? And I, I think there's a couple ways we could reflect on this. First, I think part of what it might look like is a confession of sin and recognizing where we too have mocked Jesus in our thoughts and actions. And before you say, well, I've never openly shook my fist at God, um, there are other areas in our life where maybe our thoughts and actions are telling God, I don't think you can do what you say you can do. Or maybe our mocking of God is more subtle. Like maybe we don't even realize the extent to which we are rejecting God and we're walking in the way of the world instead of walking in the way of the cross that he calls us to. Another pastor spoke about this mocking of God by saying, the great blasphemy of the universe is we believe our way is better than God's way. We fail to acknowledge and give him glory for his gifts to us. We question his rule and authority in our lives while at the same time doing that with the brain he gave us and holds together with the lungs he created and the air he gave us to breathe that with the brain and lungs and air he gave us to breathe, we would take that and say, I don't need you. So do we believe that following Jesus might look like a lot of self-denial and self-sacrifice? Do we believe that rather than jumping to our own defense or being quick to shush our revilers, following Jesus looks like bearing the shame for the name of Christ? And as followers of Christ, walking in the way of the cross means we identify ourselves with Jesus. So in part, it's a recognition of our own sin where we have mocked God, and then it also means we identify ourselves with Jesus. We should not be surprised when the world mocks us for the sake of Jesus. You believe in God? That's cute. I believe in science. How, how do you find yourself in that troublesome time? You, you pray about it? Well, I work hard for all that I have. 
Jesus himself told his disciples to prepare to be mocked and reviled for his name. This shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone reading this. The final statement in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5, Jesus says to his disciples and those who are listening, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in our sin and in our guilt, we are buried beneath the weight of our shame. Yet when we identify ourselves and link ourselves to Christ, we are with him forevermore. Jesus takes on our shame on the cross, but not just that, but his glory becomes ours. What an exchange that is that Our sin is placed on his shoulders. And instead of dealing with the consequences of our sin and shame and guilt ourselves, we get in exchange his glory and his righteousness. And that happens because Jesus resisted the temptation to get down off the cross. And so he indeed is the one who saves. What a week! What a week that was. Jesus began the week by being heralded as the Savior of Israel to shouts of Hosanna. He very quickly outstayed his welcome in the eyes of the religious leaders, yet he stayed. He saw this week as an immensely valuable opportunity to teach and lead his disciples before they inevitably were scattered. His disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying when he broke bread and shared the cup with them at the Passover meal. They fell asleep on him while he was praying in the garden, and they all abandoned him when he was arrested. Even Peter swore an oath and cursed himself as he denied knowing Jesus three times. The Sanhedrin wanted Jesus dead, but they didn't have the power to execute him. Pilate wanted nothing to do with him, and the crowd chose to release the rebel Barabbas over Jesus, who had done done nothing but love, heal, and restore The soldiers mocked him as they beat and flogged him, and Jesus was too weak to even carry his own cross. They crucified him between two other common thieves. The soldiers passed the time by casting lots for his clothing. The crowd and religious leaders couldn't pass up an opportunity to hurl taunts and insults his way. Yet he did not respond or come down from the cross. He remained silent and set on the, fat, on the path that his father had given him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Hosanna, because he is the savior of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled as we think about all that your son Jesus went through on the cross. Not just the pain, not just the torture, but he suffered the mocking and taunting of the crowds and the religious leaders gathered, making claims about him that maybe in fact were true, but he knew, Jesus knew that he would have to suffer and die so that he could save us. He could not save himself because he had to save us. So Father, thank you 
for Jesus. Thank you for the fact that he has saved us. And may we walk in the way that he set for us, not jumping to our own defense, but Father, that we would walk in humility and live lives of self-sacrifice as we identify ourselves with Christ so that we can be with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forevermore. It's the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen.